0: Welcome back to the Starbase Indie podcast, where we talk to and about people who are inspired by Star Trek or science fiction to work towards hopeful futures in the real world.
1: So, hi, everyone. Uh, I am uh, Dr. Jason Everill. I'm a professor of philosophy and healthcare ethics, also known as bioethics, at St. Louis University. Um, But I also used to live uh, in Indianapolis and participate a lot in Starbase Indie. So really happy to have been invited to be part of this uh, Starbase Indie podcast.
0: I'm excited to have you back at Starbase Indie, even if it's just on the podcast, because you're in a different part of the world now. Um, so your research interests focus on bioethics, metaphysics, and medieval philosophy. How does your interest in Star Trek mesh with all of those areas?
1: <laughs> yeah. So the first thing I should know is my interest in Star Trek predates all those. Um, you know, I've been, a, I've been a Trekker since I was a little kid. And if anything, Star Trek, you know, really inspired my love of, of exploring philosophical questions. So for example, you know, metaphysics is the study of being. And one of the questions we study in that is the nature of human being and the being of persons. And so, for example, the episode Measure of a Man, right, where data is put on trial for his status, is he a, a person or not? Um, you know, that was really influential on my, my thinking as a, as a teenager, or probably, yeah, I was a teenager by then. And, um, and then uh, bioethics, oh, man, there, there's so much bioethical stuff in Star Trek. I know we'll get into some of that uh, in a little bit. But, um, you know, just going back to, for example, in the original series, Space Seed, Khan, right? This whole notion that there was a eugenics war, that we tried to engineer a better breed of human beings, uh, that's actually a topic in bioethics that I do research on now um, a movement called transhumanism um, and medieval philosophy may seem like the least connected with Star Trek um, because you know most of the people I study you know live from the fifth or the to the 13th centuries but what's interesting about philosophical ideas is that you know they don't necessarily become outdated some do Um but, you know, there's a lot of wisdom that we can get, you know, from ancient Greek philosophers. And again, Star Trek's picked up on this. Um, Plato's Stepchildren, um, obviously famous for the, you know, first interracial kiss on network U.S. television. Gotta get those caveats right in place. Um, too many discussions on message boards of debating that. Um, <laughs> but it was the first interracial kiss on U.S. network television. Um, but besides that, what's interesting about that episode is that you have this whole society that base itself on the writings of this, from our perspective, 2,500-year-old, you know, dead guy from Greece. And um, and so I found all that fascinating. And when I started to study philosophy, I immediately saw connections between stuff that I loved in, in sci-fi, particularly Star Trek, but also Star Wars and other, you know, sci-fi shows, um, and, and what I was studying in philosophy. So
0: Your writing on pop culture and philosophy goes far beyond Star Trek, including other universes such as Star Wars, Battlestar Galactica, even Sons of Anarchy.
1: Which is your favorite of the universes you've studied and worked in? Uh, You're asking me to choose between my children. Um, (laughs) Not that they're my children. I didn't create them. But um, yeah, um, I mean, they all bring something different. I would say this. um, You know, Star Trek is... Pure science fiction, and you know, obviously, with over what 800 hours of Star Trek programming now, it's just such a rich field uh, to mine from. And you know, by and large, there's a lot of debates about you know the latest incarnations of Trek, which I do like and enjoy, but you know, continuity and so on. But it's I think it's a pretty tight universe. Um, Star Wars is fantasy, right? It's not science fiction. It's fantasy and it raises a different set of questions. Um, some of the writings I've done on Star Wars and philosophy is not so much about the metaphysics, but more about the the ethics, right? The morality, um, you know, how does a good person turn bad and turn to the dark side and things of that? So, um, so it, it's just a bit more dramatic in that regard. Battlestar Galactica, I'm a huge fan of. Um, I think that, Battlestar Galactica represents what, what Star Trek could have been. And I'm saying that it's a bad thing that it wasn't, but it's what Star Trek could have been if it was unfettered by Gene Roddenberry's constraints, right? Ronald D. Moore, of course, was a writer on Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and had to live within those constraints. And Battlestar Galactica, which he co-created with David Icke, was him being let loose. And like Star Trek, what all good science fiction does is it holds up a mirror to our society. It takes us sort of out of our world and says, let's turn things on its head. So for example, Battlestar, um, there's a great um, sequence in there where the humans are, are they colonize this um, this new world called New Caprica and the Cylons, the putative enemies in the story. I, I say they are the enemies at this point, but things get complicated as the story goes on. Long story short, the Cylons occupy New Caprica. And some of the humans turned to form an insurgency and turned to suicide bombing. Now, this was coming at the same time that the US had invaded Iraq and you had suicide bombers killing US troops and so on. So for an American to watch the news, of course, you're like, oh, that's bad, that's horrible. But then you watch it happen on Battle Stark Gladiator, you're like, well, wait a second. Maybe not that it's good, but maybe I can understand why they're doing it. Right, I, I, I get what's motivating them because these are my characters. Sons yeah, of Anarchy, of course- of,
0: science fiction does so beautifully is it gives us a safe way to talk about ideas that are in the news and are in our lives and are kind of a third rail. We don't want to talk about it in reality. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know, that's such a, one of the things I love about science fiction and obviously you do too, that it gives us a way to explore ideas that might be too dangerous
1: to explore in real life. Exactly, and, and Sons of Anarchy, of course, is not science fiction, but like science fiction, it creates, it's this you know alternate reality, unless anyone listening to this happens to be a member of a motorcycle club, um, I'm not. And, and what I was fascinated by watching that show was to enter into that world and to see how they deal with different moral questions and so on that comes up within the context of their world, which again, I can. I think we we as viewers can still draw lessons from. So it's kind of it kind of serves the same purpose as science fiction as you just described, Lisa. Yeah. So you just talked
0: about how the different worlds and universes that you've written about are different. But let's talk about how the philosophy of Star Trek is differentiated from some of the other universes that you've studied and pondered.
1: Yeah, I mean, Star Trek is unique. Uh, Primarily because of Gene Ronberry's very specific vision, which still, you know, the the estate is entrusted now to his son, uh, you know, Ron, Eugene Ron Ronberry, and um, and 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 there's an investment in maintaining this hopefulness for the future. Yeah, humanity's you know, gonna go through some some shit. Can I curse on this podcast? <laughs> we're you know we're gonna we're gonna go through you know World War III, the eugenics wars. Uh, sanctuary districts and major cities all over the U.S. Um, I just gave a talk on that recently, um, and but we're going to come out better in the end, right? Um, it, it it does get better, and that's something that yeah I don't want to give away the conclusion of Battlestar Galactica, but while I would say that I, that series also has a hopeful message, it's also very bleak. It's very dark. Darker than any Star Trek series ever was. um Sons of Anarchy is very bleak, and again, depending on one's take on how it ends, it could be a hopeful or a bleak ending. um I'm not sure.
0: Yeah. I, I'm not sure I would characterize Battlestar Galactica's ending as entirely hopeful.
1: <laughs> well, again, it's, it's 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 very hard to, to have the uh, very hard to have the big without giving anything away. Um, I mean, I, I kind of feel like there's a.
0: Um, a statute of limitations on spoilers, and that Battlestar Galactica
1: has passed it. Okay, so fair enough. All right, so here, so so here's my hopeful mess about Battlestar Galactica. You, I'm um, it's hopeful from the perspective of the the particular group of humans that we're focused on. Right, their journey ends in a way that is is the best way for their journey to end. You're right that there is though a um, the, this whole notion of the cyclical nature, all this has happened before, all that will happen again. And yeah, did we learn the lessons that they learned um, and, and not to repeat their mistakes. Um, head Six is hopeful about that. Head Baltar is not in the final scene. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, that, I, so it's ambiguous, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, one of the things that has uh, driven Starbase Indie uh mission is really the hopeful nature of the star trek vision of the future that you know there are all of these universes out there and they're all fun to play in but i wouldn't want to go live in most of them yeah. <laughs> whereas you know if you've got a if you've got a a, a bunk for me on the enterprise i'm, I'm probably i'm
1: probably in right yeah so. i'd be fine i'd be a lower decks person you know? <laughs> sure With sure that. yeah absolutely Okay, so
0: you have a chapter in the book, Star Trek and Philosophy, and at the start of that book, it says, rather than mere escapism, all of the incarnations of Star Trek ought to be seen as an entertaining, uh, ed- editing prep, I got that, I must- Edifying, I think, I edifying. think it was edifying, it yeah. Okay. Um, all of the incarnations ought to be seen as an entertaining edifying preparation for thinking through the problems that the future will undoubtedly throw at us. So what are some of your favorite bioethical questions explored by Star Trek? Mm.
1: So I mentioned earlier, you know, con and the augments, in terms of my particular interests in bioethics, I mean, I've written on lots of different topics, but my current line of research for the past eight years or so has been on this whole notion of human enhancement technology and transhumanism. Um, The idea of using either gene editing, Cybernetic implants, pharmacological uh, interventions, surgical interventions, to basically, you know, create an improved, speed version of ourselves. And I'm not a transhumanist. I'm actually very critical of transhumanism. But I'm not. I'm also not um, what is sometimes referred to as a bioconservative, or 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 more a, pejoratively a luddite. <laughs> I do think there are some there are some and actually le- legitimate enhancements. Um, that using certain forms of technology would actually not change us into a wholly new species, what's sometimes referred to as post-humans, a post-human species. I don't think that's in our best interest, but simply to make better humans as human beings. Um, and so I think the, the 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 promise and the perils of that have been very aptly demonstrated throughout Star Trek, you know, in terms of, say, you know, Con as 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 someone something we should avoid, but then also Doctor Bashir, right? I, I've I've screened many times in my bioethics classes the episode Doctor Bashir I presume, where we find out he's been genetically enhanced and and really getting into the motivations of his parents for why they decided uh, to enhance him is, is really fascinating. I would say another thing I really enjoy in terms of medical ethics in Star Trek is um just the all, the roles of the of, of the of the Doctor, the ship surgeon, the, the station chief medical officer, because they occupy this weird space, as do CMOs in in the military today. Um, you know, they're both serving in Starfleet. They're Starfleet officers. They have duties to Starfleet, oaths they've taken, but they also have their their medical oath that they've taken, right? They have certain duties and responsibilities as physicians or nurses or mental health pre- you know, counselors like Counselor Troy. Um, and so what's interesting is there is episodes which really push them to, to uh, wrestle with those competing duties. I, I'll just cite one example in this regard, um, when um, Hippocratic Oath, aptly named episode, where O'Brien and Bashir meet a group of Jem Hadar soldiers, where the leader of the Jem Hadar is trying the first, is trying to wean them off their addiction to catch cell white to break them free of the from the rule of the founders. And O'Brien is like Starfleet our mission is to escape. That's it. And Bashir's like I can help these people. I need to stay and help them. And and the tension between the two of them I think was very well crafted in that episode. So how
0: does how do you see Star Trek specifically approaching the arguments for and against uh, transhumanism. You talked about what it was, and you can't be entirely against it. I see you wearing eyeglasses. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, but so, and, and Star Trek talks about this or or shows it a lot. Everything from Geordi's visor to some of the enhancements on the crew, the Discovery, like it, it comes up a bunch. Mm-hmm. So, do they really touch in the on the philosophy, or do they just show it by example?
1: I think so. Setting aside that setting aside some episodes that explicitly deal with it. Uh, I'm thinking in particular of the three-part episode from Enterprise dealing with the augments, right? Um, where you actually get Arik Soon, who's an ancestor of Noonien Soon, who created Data, um, making arguments on behalf of why transhumanism, why Eugenic selection—why all these things would 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 be beneficial for human beings—and um, then again, the arguments within Dr. Bashir, I presume, for again, this is someone we've known by that point in the series more than four years, and we see the value he brings. And so, learning that he's been genetically enhanced is—it's like we're not just going to cashier him out of Starfleet or throw him out the airlock. <laughs> um, you know, we're invested in him. And so I think there is definitely a message from those episodes that this isn't always bad. On the other hand, on the other hand there are trade-offs. And it is true though, that most of the biotechnological enhancements we do see um, are usually therapeutic in nature. Again, just like my eyeglasses, right? It's correcting for faulty vision, but it's using technology. Um, Jordy's visor is an extension of that. But again, there's a trade-off. Um, I'm always moved by the scene in Star Trek Insurrection where under the influence of the, um, the metaphasic particles, right? In the, in, the, uh, in, in the Briar Patch, Geordi uh, recovers his natural vision or gains natural vision for the first time. Except for the time when Q gave it to him for a few minutes. Um, and he's looking at, I, can't, I, I don't know if it's a sunrise or sunset. I think it's a sunrise. And Picard comes up to him and and Jordy says, I've never seen a sunrise, at least not the way you see it. And it's just a beautiful, moving moment. The music perfectly captures it, and you just realize that for all the enhanced vision Jordy has, he is still missing out. He is still, in, you know, visually impaired. Um, and so for so this reminds me of another going back to a Measure of a Man, where um, Data says to Picard. You know, that if Geordi's vision is so superior to human natural vision, then why aren't all Starfleet officers required to have their eyes removed and replaced by cybernetic implants, (laughs) right? It's not always good. There are always going to be some negative trade-offs.
0: Yeah, one one of the other chapters in Star Trek and philosophy starts out by talking about the different way Data and Spock deal with their... uh, Absence, natural absence of emotion, right? Data is looking to bring emotion more into his experience, and Spock has chosen to back away from emotion and embrace the side of him that doesn't have it. And that trade-off, I thought, was a really interesting. Uh, it's, it's almost the same trade-off you're talking about, right? Except a different part. Uh, you know, not not vision, but but emotion. That that mm-hmm. different approach and the discussion of how different people or different beings might approach that differently.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, the fundamental question is, what is it that makes us human? And part of where I disagree with with transhumanists is transhumanists don't think there's such a thing as a human nature, that our bodies, our minds, everything's malleable. and And all we need to worry about is what we desire have the body you want to have, have the mind you want to have, whatever it takes to get it, as long as, again, it's safe and effective, and you you autonomously choose it. Whereas I believe that there is such a thing as a human nature, I do believe that there are better and worse ways of being a human being. And I think that the journey that Spock and Data and, and, you know, Seven of Nine, the doctor, right, all of whom are characters, which are Seeking either to become more human or to fit into human society, um, become more human-like is the whole their whole journey. Like I think the message of the of the shows in depicting these characters is kind of in line with that. That there are sort of authentic ways of being human, but also authentic ways of being yourself. Right? When Spock embraces his 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 humanity as he does as he you know matures as a character. I'm reminded of uh, Star Trek 6, where he tells Valeris, logic is the beginning of wisdom, not the end, right? This is something, you know, he's finally kind of embraced within himself. Um, it's, It's a particularly Spock way of being a human Vulcan hybrid, right? And so I think the lesson of all of this is to say, look, there are particular values that, are endemic to, again, being human, to being a person, to being a, a, a rational animal, uh, however you want to define us. And, but yet we're all going to live, live out that that nature in our own subjective fashion, our own individual way. And we need to embrace those differences. And that's the Vulcan philosophy of Ittik,
0: right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, infinite diversity and infinite combinations.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: One of your other, one of the areas, one of the other areas you have spoken on in Star Trek worlds is uh, personal identity as it's played with in Star Trek. So what are some of the key issues around personal identity that show up in the Star Trek
1: canon? Yeah, um, so first of all, we think of personal identity in a couple different ways. One is the, the, the very literal question of what does it mean to be the same person? through time and change, right? We all persist through time. We all go through physical and, and psychological changes. But if I pick up a, a picture, a photograph of myself at five years old, I still say that that's me, right? That, that I'm connected to that, 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 that you know, uh, that's me in a way that if I picked up a picture of you at five years old, I would say that that's not me, okay? And Star Trek has raised all sorts of, really explore that in various ways from, you know, Kirk being split in two and the enemy within, to uh, Tuvok and Neelix being combined in Tuvix, um, to Will Riker and Tom Riker, right? The transporter accident. To what I really think is probably the best exploration of this, which is the uh, first season DS9 episode, Dax, which is the first deep dive that that series did into the character of Jadzia Dax. And where um, she is put on trial for an alleged crime committed by Curzon Dax. And so this whole question of, since Jadzia carries Curzon's memories, if Curzon had in fact committed this crime, which we learned throughout the 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 episode that he hadn't, but if he had, is she culpable? Even though as Jadzia, she wasn't even born when these alleged crimes happened. So what is the moral responsibility that, that, the, the, that, that Dax takes on. And while we might think that, well, that's only a problem for trills, and if trills aren't real, then we, we don't have to worry about it. But it does evoke these questions about, is, is psychology, is our memory what makes a person? Or is it more about our physical nature, our embodied nature, um, our relational nature to other people? And then how all that tracks with our sense of, of moral responsibility. Um, the other way in which we can talk about personal identity real briefly is in terms of what I sometimes refer to as self-identity, our, our phenomenological experience of our own selves. And this ties back into your question about Spock and data and so on, in the sense that that Spock, in various ways becomes a very different person, you know, by the time we see him, you know, in Star Trek Six in J.J. Uh, Abrams, 2009 Star Trek, let's say how we saw him in Star Trek, the motion picture when he's you know, undergoing the colonar, right? He tries to be full Vulcan, full logic. And he realizes even by the end of that film, by the end of Star Trek, the motion picture, that that only gives you half the answers. And so he undergoes this fundamental metamorphosis in his self-identity, even though it's not a, you know, he's clearly the same Spock, the same person. Yeah.
0: So uh, I think it's really interesting that Star Trek has dealt with that issue of identity in synthetic intelligences. How has that treatment of the personal identity stuff changed between when it was first addressed through data in, in Next Generation and now Picard dealt with it in its first season very much with the sense?
1: Mm-hmm. So is there a
0: diff- Have they changed their view on it or what do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think. Well, they definitely changed their their view on their their moral and their legal status, right? So data, you know, after Measure of a Man was recognized as having you know the fundamental legal rights of a person in Federation society, and so he, he couldn't simply be treated you know like an object, like a part of the enterprise, um, and and, and and he was valued, right? He wasn't feared. He was, you know, a contributing member of Starfleet, died a hero, um, well, at least his first death. Then <laughs> he died again later. Um, but the point is, is that that, that was definitely the pic- the depiction of Data. And you kind of had a, a retread of that with the, the holographic doctor on Voyager, um, the episode Author, Author, where he again has to kind of go through a trial for his rights to own his own, you know, material that he created. So again, very positive, but even in that episode, we've already seen the evolution of how the Federation maybe not treats androids, but treats holographs because all we see in the episode, uh, the EMHs have now been relegated to like menial tasks, like they're being used as slave labor. And that's how we see the sense on Mars in Picard. Now, the key thing though, about the sense of Picard, at least those sense, is that they clearly have been sort of intellectually dumbed down, right? They don't have data, sophisticated positronic brain, and so to that extent, the idea is like, okay, we dumbed down. They basically lobotomized them, right? <laughs> they didn't give them the type of brain that data has. Therefore, they feel they can still treat them as slaves. Then you get the sense uh, on the on the planet. I'm blanking on the name of the planet at the end of the series, right? But Dodge and and all those um, you know now they're an object of fear, not just by the you know the the romulan um, the Jacques Vaj, but even by the federation that uh, because of what happened on Mars, you know since are viewed kind of like the Cylons of Battlestar Galactica as a potential enemy. So there's definitely an evolution, not in the I think the fundamental question still. Remains the same. Are they persons or not? How should they be treated? But be, when they became dangerous, then the federation said, "Nope, they're not persons. We're not. We're 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 outlawing them." I mean, can you imagine outlawing a group of people that you've legally recognized as persons, and now you're saying, "No, they're outlawed." I mean, if we look back in history, we get pretty close. Oh, I, I'm <laughs> not saying it hasn't happened. I'm just saying. <laughs> Can you imagine justifying that in a in in, in Star Trek time? Yeah, that's why I meant. Right, right. No, I, I not, totally agree. It's happened, for sure.
0: <laughs> These are not the parts of our history that we are very proud of, or in some cases even want to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you also talk sometimes about religion in Star Trek. Hmm. So what do you like or dislike about the way Star Trek addresses religion?
1: Primarily, I think Star Trek addresses religion in a in a in a fairly sophisticated way. Um, there are definitely some some highlights and some clunkers in this regard. Um, Gene Ronberry, of course, is um, is well known as, as as a very public, very ardent atheist. Um, my, my wife, um, who's my wife's not a big time trekker, but she celebrates Gene Ronberry's birthday every year as a fellow ardent atheist. Um, and so, um, I'm Catholic. Full disclosure. So you know we had this kind of interesting uh, dialogue between us, and it carries through when we watch, you know, Star Trek together. And um, and the thing is, so where I think Star Trek has done it really well is when it doesn't treat the it doesn't treat it as a simple divide between science and religion. I think that's a a, a false and very simplistic reductionist dichotomy um various religious figures in fact throughout human history contributed lots to science uh, gregor mendel genetics was he was an augustinian monk um, the vatican has an observatory where they made scientific discoveries in in, in cosmology um, the this is all just to say and of course then there's, then there's galileo another no, negative side so i'm not saying it's always been on the door but my <laughs> point is is that i think deep space nine throughout the series again you can view the you can view them as wormhole aliens. You can view them as prophets. I think what's interesting is how Cisco, who initially, of course, is very resistant to being labeled the you know the emissary of the prophets and so on. Even by the end of the first season, where you had the episode in the hands of the prophets, where you know Jake is complaining about Kai then uh, Vedic when you know saying, oh, you know, he's trying to force these Majoran reliefs in our school. It's dumb, and Cisco like it's not dumb it's just a different perspective it's a different way of looking at it and if the wormhole aliens as we call them truly the past present and future mean nothing to them they have this eternal perspective then why shouldn't they be considered as prophets right there's a logic he's saying to the Bajoran way of viewing them and so i thought deep space nine throughout did a great job another episode i am I'm, I'm currently when i when i go when I find the time to make it to the gym and get on the treadmill, um, I've been listening to the Delta Flyers podcast with Robbie Duncan McNeil and Garrett Wong uh, mm-hmm. doing the Voyager rewatch, because so I've been rewatching Voyager, and what I just recently did was an episode called Sacred Ground, where um, Kes gets injured um, in this temple on this planet, and Janeway has to go through this religious ritual to save Kes, and I won't get into the whole details of the story, but I find that episode to be, again, it takes a very sophisticated take on the relation of science and faith and the the, the epistemic limits of, of both. Um, the, the, you know Both arguably give us some path to knowing, um, but neither one gives us all the answers. So I think that's when Star Trek does it best. I think when Star Trek is kind of, you know, obviously <laughs> having Kirk fight God, what does God need with the starship? <laughs> You know, that's that's um uh you know that that's a great line. <laughs> but um or like in um Who Watches the Watchers, where Picard is confused with being a god, um, and he gives this whole speech about how you know we're not gonna send him back into the dark ages. And it's not that I disagree with them. I mean, I don't think that the Mentalkins should be considering Picard a god. Um, I think he was right to convince them otherwise. Um, but this, this the tone of that episode was very just dismissive of, of, of any potential way that religion could be a path to some degree of knowledge. And again, I think the Bajoran religion on Deep Space Nine gives us a much, uh, an alternative picture of that.
0: I did an interview with Dr. James McGrath, who's a theology professor at Butler.
1: Yeah, and, he's a good friend of mine, yeah.
0: Yeah, and, and speaks at Starbase. And he uh, said that... Um, If it can beat it, it's not a god, and that's the the definition of a god in Star Trek.
1: Right? No, that's true. Right? I mean, you know, uh, who mourns for Adonis? Right? Apollo. And and so I do think that it's interesting to think about these various god-like creatures that primitive humans may have mistaken for gods, but that's not what God, the term, the actual definition means. Whether God exists or not, it's the the very definition entails that it's a being that, yeah, Kirk could not defeat um, or 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 could die. So, you know, Q is godlike, but spoiler alert, the card season two, Q is mortal as well, apparently.
0: So uh, you're talking in Vegas in a couple of months and medical ethics in Star Trek. Are there any medical ethics you're going to talk about that we haven't already covered?
1: um let's see so one of that to be honest i don't know if i'll talk about this i'm actually on a panel with two other uh colleagues and we're we're each going to take one particular episode one particular example and kind of talk about it and we haven't actually decided which ones each of us are going to talk about but i'll i'll give one example of one of my favorite uh episodes is um from enterprise dear doctor in which Doctor Flock, so they, they go to this planet, and you have this, um, you know, technologically evolved species, capable, ready for first contact, all those things, um, but they're dying, and and it's a disease, you know, it's an epidemic that is, is 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 striking, you know, the entire population, and so the episode begins, you know, after they make contact, Flock is trying to help them find a cure. And then he realizes there's this kind of lower level species called the Mank. I'm blanking out what the first species is called, but yeah, the other one species and the other Mank. And the Mank are, again, they're they're, they're kind of, you know, they have some level of intelligence, but they clearly are not as cognitively, intellectually developed as the other species. And um, and they again fulfill like servant roles and things of that nature. And basically what Flocks realizes is that the Mank have the same Innate genetic potential as the currently dominant species. And maybe what is supposed to happen evolutionarily is for that dominant species to die out so that the mank can now rise and become the new dominant species on this planet. Again, what if, I think they even said this in the episode, what if Homo Neanderthalus had not gone extinct? Would Homo sapiens, us, have come into existence? So that's a really interesting. I mean, it's, it's the first episode where they kind of deal with the question of the prime directive, whether they should interfere or not. But again, this is also an interesting medical ethics question of just how much should we do, again, with technology? How much ought we to intervene in medicine to change and alter what is otherwise the natural course of things? That
0: uh, makes me think of Saru's journey in discovery where he goes through Bahar. do you remember what um,
1: yeah i'm like it's like Bahaya. i'd have to look it up <laughs> but i know what you're talking about yeah
0: yeah where he goes through that process that he was raised to believe was death and then it wasn't and it just was a shift that had been suppressed and that mm-hmm. whole you know these were uh this was the prey species and now it's the dominant species and now that you know this now do you get to go in and fiddle with the order that has been created Mm -hmm. and what gives you the moral ethical right to go fiddle with this order that's been created because you think it is the wrong one
1: Mm -hmm. yeah and and saru's a really uh, a he's my favorite character in discovery i mean i i I mean, I like Michael. I like a lot, you know, a lot of the characters. I, I like doc, I like Doctor Hugh Kober Stamets, but you know, Saru is, you know, a really fascinating um, character, and in this particular respect, too, it's important to remember how um, connected Saru is with nature, right? His quarters are decorated with flowers and soil, and and you know his his world, and and so again, when we think about humans interfering with the natural course of things. Sometimes again, we're doing it to ourselves and that's where questions about transhumanism stuff come in, but we're also doing it with, our, with the environment and we've. it's very evident the destructive effects of that. Um, and so I think, yeah, think about that, that question through Saru's perspective as someone who's so in tuned, not only as he comes to learn with his own species, but as a species embedded in an ecology. And that's something I think we've lost sight of, that we are animals, right? And however we think of ourselves in relation to other animals on this planet, the point is is we are interdependent with our environment. And yes, we can build starships and we can terraform and so on. actually interesting side note on that. So you know, in Star Trek, they typically depict terraforming as us going to other planets, uninhabited planets like Mars and so on, and adapting them to be suitable for human life. Mm -hmm. What some transhumanists are proposing is that if we are to fulfill Elon Musk's dream and get to Mars, maybe we need to be transformed. And so we adapt ourselves to be able to live in the Martian or whatever environment we're talking about.
0: Yeah, they talk about that a little in The Expanse, right? That the Belchers are, the Belchers, the Martians all have different physiology. -hmm. Not necessarily that we did that intentionally, but the the effects of growing up in those different environments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. So you have spoken at Starbase Indy for many years. So tell me, what is it that you enjoyed about Starbase Indy?
1: Oh. I think Starbase Indy, first of all, is like the perfect sized convention. It's first of all, it's fan run. It's not corporate run, right? I mean, I'm nothing against creation. I'm going to the big S, Las Vegas con, but there's something about that, that, that it's created with love and that you do get to see the same people every year, get to meet your friends and, and so on. And, um, and, and throughout the years that I've done it, you know, done this, you know, this discussion usually with a colleague or two on philosophical themes and, and sci-fi, you know, there there'll be the same, some of the, some of the same audience members, right? We'll get some new people, but we'll get some repeats and, you know, you kind of, uh, you continue a dialogue year after year and, you know, we, we get some, you know, big name people, but, you know, it's not like, like, again, in Las Vegas, there's like 50 people, like, who do you get an autograph from? I mean, I, here, it's like, okay, I know that, you know, Katie Sackhoff and Denise Crosby, that was one year that was particularly um, enjoyable for me because, A, Katie Sack. Battlestar, love her and Tasha Yar, first teenage crush. Seriously, <laughs> yeah, always my, had.
0: 2006, That was my first Starbase, Indie.
1: Yeah. Oh, that was your first one. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, so the point is, is that you know I got to have actually meaningful conversations with both of them. It wasn't just like the quick meet and greet. You're gone. Like because it's a smaller convention, and they're clearly invested in being there. Um, yeah i I always enjoyed that aspect of Starbase Indy. So what are you working on next? So um in terms of the well uh, in terms of like my well I'll refer to it as like my hardcore research, um like I said, I've been writing for the past eight years or so on uh, human enhancement technology, transhumanism um currently working on a piece with a colleague about how we balance um this, this drive to enhance human capabilities with respecting persons with disabilities. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big proponent of disability rights. And, and so if we think about improving humanity, what does that mean about, how do we, you know, how do we make that coherent with a positive attitude, a positive valuing of the different lived experiences of persons with, again, disabilities. Um, Most of which are disabilities that are, if they're experienced as bad or debilitating, it's because of social conditions, failures to accommodate, right? Um, I'm really excited in Strange New Worlds, which I've only, unfortunately, since I've been in Spain, I can't get Strange New Worlds over here. So I've only seen the first two episodes. And so I'm like, to almost three episodes behind, um, but the character of Hemmer, right, as the blind. Um, so I saw the so episode two. He's introduced, mm-hmm. and how he just completely like, like yeah, I'm not disabled. In fact, I'm superior. <laughs> like I'm just like I love that attitude on his part. Like his inability to see is in no sense from his perspective a disability, and we don't see it you know being played out that way. Um, so so that's one project in the pop culture realm i am currently finishing and just finished editing with my good friend kevin decker with whom i've done all i've done now we did two books on star wars and philosophy two books on star trek and philosophy and we just finished our third star wars and philosophy strikes back is the title (laughs) nice yeah new collections of essays um You know, obviously exploring all the films of the Skywalker Saga, Rogue One, Solo, Clone Wars, Rebels, Mandalorian, Book of Boba Fett, Bad Batch. Nothing on Obi-Wan Kenobi, but, you know, we had to send it to the publisher at some point. (laughs) So So that book will be out sometime next year.
0: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, they they keep coming out with content. You can't cover it all because they keep giving you more. Um, So where can people find you online?
1: Um, so I'm on Facebook, uh, just under you know my Jason Eberle, um, also through St. Louis University's website. You just search, you'll find it. Um all my books are on Amazon. Um, I don't do Twitter and I'm not on Instagram or Snapchat. Like I'm I'm just too old. <laughs> um, but uh, but but yeah, no, all all the books that I've done on pop culture, philosophy easily findable through Amazon or at your local bookstore, support local booksellers. And um and if they don't have it, just tell them to order it, right? right.
0: Shop.org if you want to shop online and support local booksellers. So we've got lots of options these days. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to us.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Lisa. It's a pleasure to see see you again. I'm sorry that yeah it's not in person, Starbase Cindy, but I'm only three and a half hours away when I'm not in Spain, so. Hopefully, there'll be a time I can actually make it over for, for, for Starbase Indy again.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Come back. We'd love to have you.
1: Live long and prosper. Thanks
0: for listening to the Starbase Indie podcast. To find more information about our live event this November, check us out at Starbaseindie.org or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. See you on the Starbase.